0: It's always really important to note that these athletes that you sort of think of fairly invincible and robust, and this is their life. Actually, they've got tons of other stuff that play into the performance side of things, and if you can create that internal culture and a culture around them, an environment that helps nourish that, that's obviously absolutely key. But if you don't understand what's happening outside of that, then yeah, you might well miss a trick and not get the most out of them. Really.
1: Welcome to another episode of Embracing the Journey, Living Beyond Limits. Today I am honoured to feature Steve Miller, a dedicated sports physiotherapist celebrated for his insatiable thirst for knowledge and unwavering commitment to athlete wellbeing. With an impressive career spanning from his role as a first team physio of Newcastle Falcons Rugby Union to his current position as a rehabilitation specialist for British judo, Steve exemplifies the values of dedication, persistence and continuous learning that are integral to become a trusted sports physiotherapist. Steve's profound passion for sharing insights and experiences has led him to establish the Grow Physio Academy, and notably currently instrumental in preparing the British judo team for the upcoming Olympic Games in Paris 2024. Stay tuned as we delve into his perspectives on fostering open communication and vulnerability for personal growth. Enjoy. Welcome, Steve, to Embracing the Journey Living Beyond Limits. We've known each other for a long time, haven't connected for quite a while, well, my memories of you are of joy, hope, optimism. Um, I don't remember ever meeting up with you and having trouble smiling or being happy in your presence. So I'm thrilled to have you as a guest on my podcast. It's great to see you again. So we'll get straight into it. I just want to to learn a little bit about your journey, your current role. So can you tell me a little bit about, how you know, why you became a A sports physiotherapist, where you are now and and what that journey looked like from when you started this to where you are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually post-qualifying was when our paths crossed and we coached in the States and we in California looking after all the kids from four to 19 sort of levels, weren't we? And then when we got back, I stepped into a physio role that was fairly generic in the sort of NHS world. Um built myself up, did my masters whilst there over sort of five or six years, started doing a bit of team leading, and then I just became very frustrated with the lack of time that we had to actually get good quality physiotherapy or physical therapy into a lot of individuals. So I moved into professional sport. I'd been working part-time in a division one level rugby club, classic Tuesday, Thursday training, play Saturday national standard so good standard and then I moved into full-time sport working with Newcastle Falcons which are a rugby union side northeast of England top flight so it was a good very good standard I was there for six years working as the first team physio there uh came in when there wasn't a great deal of happiness and joy in that world we were tampering around sort of relegation territories and then basically we went progressively up the league up to around we basically went eleven nine seven four got into the playoffs, that kind of thing. And then I ended up relocating. And since relocating, I've been working a little bit with the Northern Tennis Association, a little bit with British Gymnastics. And then I finally moved into a role teaching, and looking after athletes in British judo
1: in your hometown, really no less. Yeah, wonderful uh, Warsaw. Like there in the Midlands. Do you see any any differences between the athletes, between disciplines? So judo athletes to the rugby athletes to the tennis stars. Is, or is there any difference in terms of the people that you deal with, or is elite sports very similar in terms of the types of people, personalities, attitudes, characters when you're dealing with them?
0: Well, rugby's a fascinating world, to be honest, because it's a mixture of all kinds of walks of life, really. You've got Everything from one end of the spectrum where you've got private school, people who obviously like the schools have just focused entirely on rugby, therefore they've become very good. They've probably in many ways had a lot of privileges in their lives. You've got other folks, farmers. You might we had a guy who was working in a pub, sort of just chucking uh beer kegs around, that kind of thing. And then we had a lot of different nationalities as well, a lot of islanders. South Sea Islanders, um, real mixture of individuals, a lot of them very religious. Um, a lot of them have different cultural beliefs, expectations. So it really was a, a massive mixture of different worlds. We had the tongue, the guy who was sort of Tongan captain when he first came in. He was a guy who was sort of running into uh, training for about three miles, didn't have any money, hadn't known anything else. And then sort of by the end, they sort of become captain. Yeah, lots of different expectations that would go on in in the sort of the culture really. One one thing that stands out is remember there was one almost like the godfather of Tonga really that was there and he sort of said to this young lad, "I like your watch," and basically had to take it off, give it to him, and that was just sort of the culture that they had really. And he'd have to drive him for nights out, he'd have to pick him up after nights out. Eventually, just in that sort of almost passing of time way, worked his way up. Team sports is something that I've been far more familiar with and. and mainly been men that I've worked with. Judo uh, is interesting. You've got males and females. You've got a lot of different personalities, characters in that world. So Worth With Females has come with a a lot of different challenges that males don't have. So obviously all the sort of hormonal side, female health side, dealing with sort of menstrual cycles, all the injury risks that come with that. We have where it's a weight making sport, which is different to Obviously, any other team sport, really, where you want to stay within a certain weight category. But again, there's these crash diets and things that go on. People will be sucking ice cubes for sort of about three days prior to fighting, that kind of thing. Uh, massive calorie deficits. That increases injury risk enormously. So, yeah, there's, there's tons of different variations, really. I think the percentage of kind of OCDs, anxieties, depressions, and things like that, that are, are in the, the sort of world that I'm working in now, is a lot higher than it was previous. But it's definitely not to say that there there weren't mental health challenges and and other sort of characteristical and behavioral diagnoses that were going on in that world, really. But yeah, they're all very driven. I think as an individual sport, obviously, it's very much down to you. The other massive change and differences on the mentality side of things in judo, a lot of these guys will travel out to the Far East or around Europe or sort of all the way out to Australia. They might travel all that way. They might make weight. And then basically within 30 seconds, their entire competition might be over. So if they get thrown on their back, what's called Ipon, that's it. That's game over. So the months and months of prep, all of the sort of sacrifice stuff can literally come crashing down. Whereas contrast that with football, rugby, you go three goals down in the first 20 minutes, it's not great, but you've still got a chance to then kind of claw your way back again. And sometimes, yeah, that mental... That works in two ways, really. The mental side of, God, you've just gone crashing out and it's all over. There's nothing that you can do. But actually that grit and determination and kind of showing that sort of character that you can do because you've got an opportunity to come back is something that, yeah, you just don't have really in judo immediately. Obviously, you go back to the drawing board. You start all your coaching and training. But I think then you become really hyper-focused on the minutia of detail. on what little, a bit like a sort of a sprinter, I guess, like, I don't know, they'll finish one Olympics and... Maybe they'll need to shave off half a a second off their time in four years. And they basically set themselves that challenge and it's tiny margins, which again sort of means you can become the uh, sort of hyper focused, analytical on every part of your life in and out of the sports setting, really.
1: So, right now you're with British Judo, correct? So that's your main role. And then you also um, run your own physiotherapy company, Grow. So can you tell me a little bit about your day-to-day? So within British Judo, what are you dealing with? What athletes are you dealing with? What's your day-to-day process? What, what's a common day in the life of Steve Miller?
0: Yeah. So I think if we go down the Judo route first, so we have about 35 athletes who are split, all almost 50, 50. Within the female judo world, they're actually a lot more successful. We've got two world number ones, um, probably about four or five are in the top 10 in the world in their different weight categories. Typical day-wise, I'll probably go in for about eight o'clock, drop my little boy off, head in, and then basically put together some rehab programs, some planning, set up all of the injury monitoring stuff. So on the entry day, something that I've brought from rugby is like a weekly monitoring. We used to do it daily in judo it's a very different culture so we've introduced it on the the entry day so basically the athletes will come in they will do a series of different checks which are uh, under the watchful eye of myself and some of the rest of the sports science team and then what they'll do is they'll compare the scores that they have so typical things that they'll look at mobility strength output so they'll look at things like their ankle mobility what's their sort of hamstring extensibility like their lower back like is their hip internal rotation-like. Big emphasis in judo is we have a lot of ACL injuries. So at the moment, we're in a, an interesting predicament where we have ACLs typically, once they rupture, will have surgery and then they'll often come back nine to 12 months is sort of the, the pretty much the standard. What we have now with the Paris Olympics coming up, which is quite an interesting one, is we have people who've done their ACL, they're ACL deficient, but they don't have enough time to have the operation and come back before parrots. And even if they did have that long, they haven't got enough time to accrue enough points in competitions to then qualify. So it's a really interesting world that we're living in now where we have to make sure that obviously everybody is as risk-averse as they possibly can be. So really important to look at all the checks and things. What we'll normally do is go through all the checks. A lot of the fit athletes will then work on corrective things. So anything that they maybe have a deficit in, they will correct before they step onto them. The rest of the team. So there's currently 17 fighters who are in rehab at the moment. So, again, of a 35 squad, we are massively depleted. I've worked there for about a month. So, I'm kind of inheriting a tricky world, but I'm trying to instill some of the things that have really worked well in times gone by. Obviously, leading up to Paris, we've got less than a year. It's obviously imperative that they have as much time on the mat. They're as consistently performing uh, as they can, and their availability is really high. And and that's something that goes sort of across the board that I've realised. The more you can consistently stay fit, I know it seems obvious, and as a squad stay fit, you will generally need to higher uh, outcomes. Really, obviously, Leicester being the classic one, weren't they back in the day? There, the de- the year they won the English Premier League, their injury numbers were almost non-existent. Really, so it was a definitely a, an overachieving kind of way. Relies on that sort of togetherness, that availability, always sort of having that familiarity of the same team turning. Ideally, sort of a same 11 turn out every week, isn't it? And then, yeah, as the day goes on, any treatments, any extra bits, we'll have meetings with the rest of the the team who are there. It's a great team. It's a really diverse team in terms of we have a big emphasis on nutrition. Obviously, the coaches are there. We have a head of performance who's there. We have a large emphasis on the sports side, side of things, uh, both performance side and also lifestyle as a separate girl who works there who just looks at lifestyle. So outside of that judo world, um, obviously life goes on. So making sure that people during and post their careers um, in judo are obviously kind of set up for uh, life afterwards, really. And then yeah, whatever comes and throws itself in really along that way. And then Grow Physio Academy is something that I set up in lockdown. That is a teaching platform to try and support therapists. I realized when lockdown kicked in. People, students weren't able to have the 2000 placement hours that they require. So I just thought, well, what can I do to help support them? So I started putting on just free lectures, free seminars mm-hmm. online. And then it just got so much traction that yeah, we started to then sort of expand, put it onto a website and that is now used by yeah, hundreds. and Probably there's been thousands of people who've sort of been exposed to some of the learning and it's been really nice for me to kind of share some of the stories of pro sport because it is a very hidden secretive world and I don't think it should be I think it should should be something that we share far and wide really so people can learn and, and obviously develop themselves on all aspects
1: yeah so you said obviously you've got probably 50% of the athletes right are out injured right now or in rehab and I'm sure you have an extent of like minor strains and maybe is a week out or two weeks to obviously the ACL injuries you spoke about what's the difference in the psyche of those athletes that you have to deal with in terms of those that are out for a short time compared to those that are missing out on effectively a lifelong dream to compete in an Olympics that I may be preparing their whole careers for. And now, obviously, within a click of your fingers, like that that dream has gone. How, how do you balance and how do you deal with the, the separate athletes?
0: Yeah, it's a really good one. So if I give you an example, really, we've got some, someone who would had a, a really big uh, tear of the ligament on the inside of their knee, not the ACL. Uh, the one one called the MCL on the inside and basically what you're looking at is about 14 to 16 weeks of rehab really to get back to the nature of judo which is a long time the big factor that often plays a part in this is sometimes the individual and what they've had leading up to it so you might have someone who's had multiple consecutive injuries progressively it starts to really chip away and we talk a little bit about trying to frame some of the the impact mentally I guess in terms of what we do with them and we sort of almost call it like a puddle a paddling pool or an ocean in terms of is it a small problem big problem some of the conversations that I'll sort of have with my seven-year-old at home like is this really a big problem is it a small problem but then sometimes I think the the key bit is you might actually have a a relatively small problem but goes on for a consistent amount of time and then it becomes a big problem so it might not be a huge factor to them, but actually that sort of consistency of those small problems and chipping away at them can then develop into a real issue. And I think probably one of the the best things that I've started to do, particularly with long-term injuries, I still do it with the, the short-term ones, but if someone's out for a week or two, it's quite quick to say, well, actually, this is what the next week's going to look like. We're going to do X, Y, Z in rehab, and then we're going to drip you back in next week again. And then hopefully get you up to full, what's called randori, which is full training after that, really. The ones that are long-term, I think it's really vital to, to paint the picture and not just in terms of this is what it's going to look like. This is how your strength is going to develop and how your function is going to develop. But I think what I've also started to do a lot more is at this sort of stage, a lot of athletes will struggle mentally at this point because it feels a bit Groundhog Day. You're doing the same thing. It's a bit monotonous you won't see massive amounts of benefit and progress. But if you do this and do it really well and efficiently, actually consistently doing that will mean that you're much quicker at coming back on the other end and you'll be in a much better place. You'll be more robust, less injury prone, et cetera. But some of that has come from just experience though of knowing how athletes go. And almost what I try and do is preempt that along that journey to try and almost make sure that they factor in things like time off make sure they've got long weekends somewhere are they have they got something they really want to do and focus in on um and we almost plan out that full sort of nine to 12 month journey with some of the long ones to make sure that they've got things that they look forward to and they don't just gradually feel like god i'm just turning up and it's the same routine every single day because it is tough it is really tough for athletes not to do what they love and obviously we want to get them back doing as much of that as possible some things that have also sort of helped i guess in that journey for us is we've given them other roles to play so it might be that they do a little bit of analysis work on themselves or other athletes or what is it that they can do so they still stay engaged and still go to meetings because I think it can feel very much like you've got the injured and the fit, and then it becomes a little bit of a divide really so trying to blend and blur those worlds is really useful i think, to try and feel like they're still engaged
1: with the process how important is priming the experience and giving them distractions with other roles and maintaining a realistic picture but you know, because the, phys- I'm assuming the physical rehabilitation, like that process can't necessarily be sped up, right? That it, the amount of time you need to have surgery, recover, and recover it maybe a week or two sooner rather than later, but you can't really speed up the physical. Or have you seen that those with a more optimistic view or those with more of a distraction maybe are focused more on their rehab, so are able to return, um, faster than what was anticipated yeah
0: 100 percent. so i think sometimes what you will inherit in terms of this again this one girl who's again sort of gunning to get to paris really, she has be. i think she's a personality who comes in and she is very open with the fact that she wants she's happy being the first person in and the last person to leave at the end of the day that for A physio is an absolute dream come true because you know they're going to do all the extras and do all the extra bits that they possibly can. So they are in the best possible place once that healing process has happened. So the key thing, yeah, you're absolutely right. So the healing, sometimes you can't do a great deal to physiologically increase healing. You can do things that create an environment that are a little bit better for healing, but fundamentally something will take X amount of time to heal. What your plan is as a physio is really stress everything around it. So everything around it is creating a a robust, protective, almost invincible body um, that sort of fits a faster, stronger than it was beforehand. Do all your testing to make sure that they are absolutely ready to go and probably better than, ideally better than they were prior to obviously injuring themselves. But you do get on the flip side, like the other athletes really. So you get the ones who are constantly trying to cut corners. They'll come late for rehab. They'll be the first ones to leave. They maybe be texting on their phone, all that kind of stuff. It, it is challenging. Sometimes it's a personality trait. We've gotten quite a few who've got ADHD in the judo world. So the challenge of actually keeping them on track and on topic is more challenging sometimes than someone who is super hyper-focused. We've got a girl who, who is a little bit of a mixture of both of those. So she is Very OCD. So she will want to know precisely exactly what she needs to do in that session, number of repetitions, the speed, the number of sets. So she's constantly checking precisely what she needs to do. But on the flip side, what it means is that we have to sit down at the beginning of every single session and talk through exactly what that is. So we've kind of learned that she will go a bit AWOL and she won't be able to focus in on what she needs to do. And she'll become really frustrated unless it is absolutely to a T told exactly what to do and when she has that she's probably one of the hardest grafting people in the entire club but if she doesn't have that she just can't actually function around that so yeah it is it's a real mixture of different approaches that you have to have there's tons of stuff around performance anxiety as well that goes on so we probably gone a little bit on a bit of a tangent from what you said really but we have quite a few who are who associate that performance side of things with a lot of anxiety. So they will come in and they will preempt a lot of excuses for why they may not deliver on the day. So they might come in two weeks before they're about to compete and they'll plant a seed saying, oh, this isn't right. This isn't right. Can you check this? Can you check that? And often you'll check it and say, it's absolutely fine, but they will often mull that over return with something else. So I remember one guy coming in and even in rugby worlds, actually, and We had a week where we, within a week, he had what he thought was an adductor strain, like a groin strain, a perineal rupture. So like the muscle on the outside of his ankle ruptured. He thought he had a big full thickness tear of a a muscle in his shoulder. And I think it was like a hamstring pull. And it was like, we haven't done anything which will ever create any of these injuries testing him. He came back fine. But it was just a journey that I think he was wanting to almost put things in place that that maybe were reasons why he wasn't going to perform on the day. And that's something that I think initially I just thought
1: he was a bit mad. Thank you for listening to our podcast. In this current episode with Steve Miller, we've explored profound insights already. Steve beautifully articulates the essence of creating culture founded on open communication, unwavering honesty and the strength found in vulnerability. Amidst the noise and facades, Steve emphasizes the importance of listening to people, peeling back layers to uncover the person behind the bravado. It's about resetting our minds, fostering understanding and embracing the journey beyond our perceived limits. He also reflects on the diverse journey individuals undertake, each with unique goals, challenges and pursuits. Central to his message is the importance of fostering relationships to nurture trust and understanding and he warns against allowing minor issues to escalate into major challenges. Keep listening as we delve deeper into Steve's journey on Embracing the Journey Living Beyond Limits. So how do you balance how you approach those different types of athletes? Like how you deal with the frustrated athlete because I know we spoke offline about you not really on the mental side of it more the you know the physical rehabilitation like process probably more methodical right
0: Where these athletes all come from I think I make assumptions really kind of coming into an Olympic setup really where we're feeding people for the highest stage in the world that they're going to be really good at the basics and sometimes they haven't got a clue like it's staggering for me that a lot of them you kind of take them over the road to a leg press or something like that and you're like well I'll just jump on the leg press like, I'd never used that before and you're like I don't understand what's going on here like you've got to the point where you're in the peak of your career but they are often just entirely map based so they don't do a great deal in terms of the robustness the s c side they've just got away with amazing technique and gliding around on a map sort of thing. So, I think sometimes it's very much a case of sort of almost just sitting down with them. I almost try and allocate like an hour where we often go off site, talk about their concerns, their thoughts, their sort of perceptions in terms of what this is going to look like. And then I'll give them the reality in terms of this. And then hopefully if they're like, well, there's absolutely no way that will work. I need to do X, Y, Z. We'll try and factor that in. And it might be we change the format of days or whatever. A lot of the time within elite sport, though, what we have to do is make sure that we hit targets. So. If someone says, look, yeah," it, I think the worst thing that can happen is we say, look, this is a six week injury, so you'll be back on the the mat or competing in six weeks. And they go, oh, well, it doesn't matter what I do for those six weeks. Then it has it definitely been a useful thing for me to try and go very much objective marker in terms of assigning figures and numbers to things really. So it's almost, uh, well, when you have achieved this, you can then progress onto this next stage. So can apply that to any sport really at all so it might be anything from like you sprint do you know what i mean you obviously have to sprint in football you need to sprint in rugby lots and lots of different sports will require that but actually if you haven't fulfilled the strength markers expose it to enough speed hit the targets on the isokinetic machines or whatever it is that you're using you're not sprinting so therefore you are not going to be involved in training therefore you're not going to be picked or selected for the competition and yeah there's definitely that side where I think explaining that it's not just a time game, but it's definitely something that requires grasp on their behalf. And then you can apply this all the way, right the way down to sort of, I don't know, Doris, who's just kind of got an arthritic knee somewhere else. I, I sort of always used to sit down in that world and just say, realistically, Doris, like how long have you got that you can allocate to me in terms of rehab every day? And if they say five minutes per day or 15 minutes per day, there's no point in giving them a gourmet, sexy two hour long rehab program then that's what they're going to do and actually I think probably just that awareness in terms of the other demands and things that happen in other people's lives is really important as well and that's something that I've probably delved into more again the backstory to that guy who did present with sort of four injuries in a week and you were like god will you just get out of the physio room and you're absolutely fine we went off site with him had a sit down conversation I just said look what's going on because you've been in four times a year each time he'd come in this is going on he sort of just burst out out into tears and he had loads of home related things going on he wasn't sleeping these sort of anxiety levels were through the roof there was contract negotiations basically I think depending on whether he got a contract or didn't get a contract um was basically going to determine whether or not he stayed in the country or had to move clubs or potentially all the extra sort of financial stresses that come with it so I think it's always really important to note that these athletes that you sort of think of fairly invincible and robust and this is their life. Actually, they've got tons of other stuff that play into the performance side of things. And if you can create that internal culture and a culture around them, an environment that helps nourish that, that's obviously absolutely key. But if you don't understand what's happening outside of that, then yeah, you might well miss a trick and not get the most out of them really.
1: How much do you feel that you can influence a, an individual's desire to go through that grueling process of rehabilitation. We're talking about people that have been working their entire lives to play at the pinnacle of their sport or regional Olympic games, or it's their livelihood, it's their world effectively, what they've built around. So how do you influence those individuals that have those external issues?
0: I think it's a... It's an area that I think for me, I have to almost try and just recognize that there's something not going well. And almost, I think one of the best things that I've sort of listened to recently was this guy who on his podcast, uh, Chris Boss, I think he's called, and he's a hostage negotiation man. And it's just almost trying to get people to talk, really, and try and extract some information from them. And it's a fascinating podcast, to be fair. And obviously, kind of when you're dealing with hostages, sort of negotiation stuff obviously there's a lot on the line and it's called uh, never split the difference this but I think that awareness and that insight in terms of realizing when something is going on you whether you you just get little clues don't in behavior or sort of see it in someone's eyes or whatever it may be but it's one of those where I think for me as a physiotherapist my job and, and scope of practice is not to then deal with that psychological side in its entirety I think it's the ability for them to recognize that something's not right and then almost direct them in, in the right direction in terms of psych or, or lifestyle support, we call it in the UKSI, which is the UK Sports Institute. and And we have people on the ground and we also have specialists that we can send people to, which when we compare that actually to rugby worlds, where I think there's probably as much in the way of mental health stuff but probably in a world that's got a lot of testosterone flying around probably fewer and fewer people are as open to acknowledging it or talking about it and you can imagine like an 135 kilogram man coming to talk to me about some issues that he has it might not be something that he's particularly open to but i think for me it's just that if you've got stuff going on pass it on i'm just watching the beckham documentary i don't know whether you've seen that um, really but
1: so i got to it yet yeah, no but it's uh, well,
0: a fascinating one actually because he after he did his little heel flick, do you remember when he took Simeone yeah. down? And the amount of abuse that he took on the back of that and didn't talk about it, but was obviously analysing. And I think the world we live in now is far more open, isn't it, in terms of talking about mental health struggles and seeking help and support. But Rio Bernard actually, as just says, it, it just was never even anything that was ever mentioned. And obviously his performance because of what was happening mentally was just absolutely going down the toilet really. And then, yeah, obviously fans are pretty harsh, aren't they, when they get on someone's back. And he was just taking a tirade of abuse, basically, on the back of that. I think it just sort of, across the board, if your psychological position and psyche's in a good, healthy place, and it's reflected across the team, and you're in, a, in an environment that recognizes that, I think it's really useful. I mean, yeah, I'm just, I'll stop harping on in a second, but the one little good example that I heard that's happening at Newcastle United and obviously a club that's close to my heart is in the early days again I have got a friend who works within those worlds but he was saying what he does quite nicely with the squad is meet them on a one-to-one basis at the start of a week and talk about anything that's going on outside of the club and what he then does is then relays that doesn't necessarily share the intricate details but will highlight to the rest of the squad that such and such player will actually if he seems a little bit off this week it's because he's got some stuff going on or actually he's really struggling with this part of his performance side of things so actually he's going to take himself away it's not a personal dig on anyone don't take things personally but this is what's happening and I think that's created like a really nice cohesion of you just got then someone mediating and recognising that some people are struggling and actually letting other people that they are struggling a little bit so they can be a bit more accommodating and I think working with females sometimes probably more than males, guys just tend to punch each other but girls can be quite catty and clory and it can get quite bitchy if someone says something in a manner that someone's not very happy with and they hold grudges And I think that sort of mediating bit would be really useful as something to recognise really and it's just, it's something consistently that can change and it can be fluid but I think it's something that I've tried to
1: share where I can because I think it's a really useful aspect as we continue to listen on we're contemplating the necessity of recognizing changes in others and the profound importance of communication often what we perceive to be reality may not align with the truth therefore the ability to step back observe and then confidently inquire or express interest in others becomes vital in building trust consider this how often do we assume we understand someone's situation without truly engaging with them Steve's insights remind us of the significance of genuine communication in fostering trust and understanding. So let's delve deeper. What methods have you found valuable in building trust with others? We invite you to share your thoughts and experiences as we continue this journey of exploration and growth together. Stay tuned for more enriching discussion. Thank you for joining us in this moment of reflection. You you spoke earlier about having targets to hit, meeting with athletes to kind of give them a lay of the land. Like this is how it's gonna look like. Obviously, there's going to be potential for setbacks and, you know, occurrence of injuries. How important do you think they're having that meeting, setting goals that maybe aren't rigid, okay? At this stage, if we haven't reached this point, this is the direction we can go.
0: I think it's really useful. I mean, I think you can sit down at the start and then almost get to the point where they're like, I don't know, six weeks later, I'm already now. And if you then go, oh, Actually, do you not realize how far away you are from meeting the targets and things? It's, that's the kind of worst case scenario, really, because they're expecting something. And actually, in your head, you're like, God, they're just not being particularly coherent with rehabilitation They're not fulfilling what we require. I always think it's probably like a, a review or something that you have with a good manager, really. You should know exactly what they're going to say or a parent's evening or whatever it may be. You should know already what the outcome is going to be before you even get there. But yeah, I mean, we have an ideal where obviously people have enough strength, stability, power, all the other sort of components that come with that really. And if they aren't there, then really it just increases the injury risk that they may well have. So I think it's not like we we go to the point where we get people to sign waivers, but I think it's really important to note that actually if you have a deficit in strength or control in a certain range where that tissue, be it ligament, muscle, whatever it is, vulnerable to injury actually your risk of re-injuring is a lot higher and and the tricky thing that comes with that is when you've got a marquee player I don't know like a we had a Fijian player of the year in, in the Falcons world and the reality was we wanted him on the pitch as much as we possibly could so if you tell a coach he's not quite fulfilling the markers that he's fulfilling but he can probably play an hour for you they're always going to put them in for an hour so yeah you've got to almost I think be careful what you say sometimes and also probably probably that's probably a little side point, but yeah, I would never ever tell a coach that he's ahead of where he is. I'd probably just say yeah, we're on track really in terms of where we are, because then all they'll do is then start crossing weeks off There, return to play time really.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think it's tricky. It? The the reason I ask that is I feel like in terms of we spoke off the uh, the recording about resilience and is it a skill that can be taught? And I believe it can be. And I think foresight is an important aspect to that. So if I foresee a potential problem, it doesn't necessarily come as a shot to me. Right? So if I know what roadblocks are potentially ahead and they don't happen, then there's no problem. But if they do happen, I'm kind of prepared in a way that helps me bounce back from that obstacle setback a little bit faster. Obviously we can't, uh, literally list every potential issue, but it, I think in terms of building that resilience and hope of an athlete, they know what's coming. I would assume that will help them in terms of staying staying on focus, right? In terms of, okay, I knew this was going to happen. This is how I deal with it. So I'm, I'm curious how, how much of a part of that plays in kind of the sports physio world and preparing elite athletes. And obviously your focus is very much on the physical rehabilitation and giving them targets and setting goals. but I think that's an important um, communication piece at the very beginning that you spoke about that can help these athletes excel. Um, I'm I'm intrigued as well in terms of the growth physio academy that you you put together during the pandemic. I think in terms of any walk of life, sharing information, sharing knowledge uh, can only breed curiosity to to learn more and to excel. So, how important do you think that? education and that environment of sharing knowledge and and building that network, how important do you think that is in terms of growing future sports physios and and how they can then go on and help um, the athletes at the levels that they're working at?
0: I think it's been a great project on many levels. For me personally, I think it's been a chance to sit down and work out what drives me, what is my purpose, what is my icky guy, that kind of thing. So it's definitely fulfilled something. And I think some people are wired in that sense. Like I love sharing, I love supporting, and I love helping and develop other individuals. I think it's made me a better physio indirectly as well. You go into the research, the literature, all that kind of side of things. And I think probably the thing which is really useful, which has happened and it's given me a chance to do it is reflect on some of the case studies. So within the platform, there's, there's various different athletes who really kindly said, look, you can record what I'm doing. It takes you through the journey of from their assessments, injuries, all the way through their treatments, rehabs, and then sort of their return to play, really. And, and sometimes it's really human nature, I think, a lot of the time to ignore the the things that you do well on a regular basis and just accept that's just the norm. But actually, when some certain people get back on time or they get back before they're supposed to and they don't re-injure themselves and they're performing at a high level, I don't think we probably give ourselves enough of a pat on the back sometimes to say, well, well actually we've done a really good job but then the next level is to work out well why has that happened so what have we done on that journey that actually was done really well that we should repeat i think human nature goes the other way and it sort of says when something cocks up or doesn't go very well we kind of go well we'll kick ourselves we kind of look at all of those in great detail and kind of almost procrastinate and like look around all the different elements of what we could have done differently but actually i think Sometimes when it does go well, it's trying to just highlight those things. And I think that's one human trait that I think I am still trying to work on. I think I'm hypercritical of stuff that I do. But again, it's something that if you can instill that, then hopefully kind of in other people that I work with, they start repeating those positive habits and they really kind of, then you create momentum and yeah, a really sort of positive environment. You start feeding off each other, you get plenty of energy. And yeah, that's when for me, you start becoming a bit creative and curious about things, and it just sparks other ideas, doesn't it? Rather than just going, it's all doom and gloom when one person out of twenty does break down for whatever reason. So, yeah, it, I can't really remember the original question, Lee. To be fair, <laughs> I've just gone on one there. Uh, no, I, on I, I'm, uh, I'm,
1: I'm thinking how because obviously similar to to what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring people's stories together to share that knowledge, so we we can um, we can become better individuals, right? Better versions of ourselves. And I think that's, and that's the important thing. So I think you answered the question. My, my follow up question would be, what do you think is the biggest void in the education process of a physio? What, what I think you said that things were behind like cloak and dagger or behind the, like, what things do you feel are, are critical in the physio world that you feel drives that passion to share things that you felt maybe weren't shared with you? So I think it pro-
0: when I look back at, at some of the, the things, and, and I think I was very lucky to find Grove Physio as a sort of project, really, because when I look at some of the things that really annoyed me or really motivated me, one of the biggest things that used to annoy me the most was we used to get about 20 letters from different students each week into the rugby club, and they all wanted just to come in to see what we do, to shadow, to learn, to develop, to maybe do a placement sort of setup. And the doc had basically just said, look, we're not having anyone in at all, and They just said, look, for various different reasons that didn't really wash, to be fair with me, they just said, we can't have anybody in. And I just thought it's a real shame that for me growing up, like I went into Leeds United and, but that was through a really close contact that my dad had. But if you don't know the chairman or the manager or the, you, you live on the same street as someone who's the head coach or something like that, you don't get to see what happens in a professional sporting world. And people will make up various reasons as to why that's not possible, but For me, I feel like it should be a world that people can access. Um, I feel like there's a lot of great things that go on behind closed doors, but the people who are very precious over exactly what they do, I think my gut feeling is they're just a little bit uh, apprehensive about, I suppose, people just going, oh, actually, you don't do anything that's any different, really, to what other people do. But I think there's this sort of stigma, if you like, or sort of perception within pro sport that you do these amazing brand new techniques that we, that a bog standard sort of physio who's five years qualified couldn't do. But the reality is if you do the basics incredibly well and build that foundation and do those kind of big rocks really well, then actually the extra little sort of one percenters that I call them, like they're the sort of the, the little bits of electrotherapy or massages or mobilizations or whatever it is actually they are just extra on top of that but I think a lot of people just hang themselves on some really fancy flashing piece of equipment that that will potentially solve someone's issue but actually a lot of the time it it doesn't get done particularly well and and that's absolutely something that I believe just in terms of sort of sharing bits I'm not saying my way is the absolute best way but I have learned and picked up quite a lot from working in elite sport for 10-15 years now that will hopefully help them really I don't think there's ever been a time I was there. This is a prime example, really. And and I listen to podcasts and things on sort of high performance or whatever it is on the ways into work or back again. And and it's amazing that you actually have access into these great minds and individuals that, like, we never used to, did we? When we were sort of grown up, it would have been amazing to hear what Kieran Trippier has said about his career and what he's done and what's happened in Newcastle United, which is one podcast I listened to just a couple of days ago. So, yeah, it is a great world that we live in, where we do have access now, um, that can work against you. I think you mentioned off uh, off cam really, social media can certainly work in the opposite way, can't it? Where it does become a bit toxic and you just don't feel like you've got the amazing lives that everybody else has, but I think that's tough.
1: Cool. Yeah. I think the devil's in the detail, right? And I think the environment that's created, and I think being honest and open with people through that process is really important. So from your experience and through your education platform through growth physio academy what are the biggest things that you try and in not influence but educate those guys that are involved in growth physio what are the biggest things that you look to to educate them on
0: yeah it's interesting because the platform itself
1: is a, a sort of a range of different
0: courses and it takes you through body parts or from how to assess the theory the treatments the rehabs the returns all that kind of stuff but What we also have is once a month, we meet up as a collective. So online, almost in a sort of mentoring fashion, really, is where we are. But people will often come with the odd little query relating to something that's anatomical. What should I do with this sort of athlete who's broken down with this injury? And what should I do? I'm at this stage. What should I potentially do? But I would say the majority of them um, that, that comes into this is sort of what how do I communicate that? How do I plan it? How do I talk to the coaches and the athletes? How does it vary? And I think what I did as a up and coming physio was probably spent almost probably every other weekend traveling around the country, learning new skills, new sort of bits and pieces. It might be the way to mobilize an ankle. It might be sort of how to acupuncture something. It might be sort of a certain different techniques you could do. But I think as time goes on, the more emphasis that that sort of become a realization is that communication side of things is the probably the superpower, if you like. So that ability to get somebody on board, motivational interviewing kind of techniques to make sure that they are on board with that process and how are you going to fit this in and make an agreement and almost sort of, not that you sit down and write a contract, but it's like, this is what I expect from you. This is what you expect from me. And let's go and deliver this uh, and be the best that we possibly can be. Um, so I think that side of things is often what tends to come up, people shitting themselves that they don't know how to tell the coach that such and such isn't going to be available in two weeks' time, even though he's been out for six months because he's picked up a little niggle in rehab or something like that. I think there's just sometimes being a physio, the nature of our job is we have to deliver bad news, don't we? We deliver bad news that, yes, you have injured this. It's going to be this amount of time out. You become basically our hell old head physio was called the Grim Reaper because every time he went upstairs, it was just to tell. The coaches or the director that basically someone's was going to be out injured for another X amount of time. So we do deliver bad news, but I think sometimes that's just the reality. I think the main thing that people want is a genuine, honest account as to what it's going to be and knowing that there's support there to get them back uh, to the best that it possibly can be. And yes, it might not be easy. Yes, it'll be tough mentally, physically. Um, a lot of people don't shirk away from the hard graft but actually sometimes that, yeah, that sort of mental side of things is is also the one where you do get people coming and crying and going, God, I haven't done X, Y, Z. And, and I think per, on a personal level, being able to talk again about how broken I nearly was when I left Newcastle, I was working six or seven days a week, working really long hours. We had a little man who didn't sleep at all. So there wasn't much left in the the tank. There wasn't a great deal of refilling of cups where I was trying to do things for me. It was just give. So I think sometimes I end up getting a lot of the physios who are feeling fairly similar, that they're actually mentally struggling with the delivery and actually probably being there or thereabouts where you just feel like you can't give enough to something and people always want more. And it is a very demanding world. really does play on you. So... I think just being able to relate to that kind of thing and and say, you know what, a lot of the things that you have are totally normal. What you need is to think about all the things that refill your cup and make sure you factor those in. Because if you don't, all you're going to do is be an empty shell and not be able to deliver the quality that you want to. Because we're all carry-sherry people, most of us physios. And yeah, I think the natural tendency is just to give and give, but we probably don't highlight our own needs enough either.
1: How did you deal with that? I I can only imagine as a physio the amount of, Empathy, compassion, boosting the mood of the individual, because as I said at the very beginning, generally when they come to you, you said that at the Grim Reaper, right? Is they're coming to you because they're hurt, right? They're coming to you because they can't do what they love to do. But if you yourself are feeling drained, empty cups, as you put it, how did you overcome that in terms of going into work every day and not letting that affect your work or the environment you created for your athletes? And then how did you, how did you manage that situation for yourself?
0: I think for me, it was a really weird situation. I felt like working at the club and being involved was such a great honor and a privilege. And you're dealing with some of the best athletes in the world, really. So on paper, you had sort of people going, God, your job's amazing. It was sort of your, it was like your identity that you're part of this amazing setup, but I think what ended up happening was, I think I ended up with, I kind of laugh about it now, but I think I probably had Stockholm syndrome. I'd probably fallen in love with my captor. They were basically had me in entirety, sort of six, seven days a week, every single day of the year, bar probably about two and a half weeks. So you don't ever get sort of gaps or time where you just kind of step away from it. You've got, even in that environment, all the players have got your numbers. So you'll be sitting there watching Netflix or whatever it is. And then Someone will text saying, I'll be hamstring feel tight. Then you'll have to rejig your whole entire diary round, plan some treatment in to make sure they don't sort of tear that anymore. All that kind of thing, really. So again, I think the problem that you have, especially if you start to mentally go, that I found was my ability to absorb as much information and really actively listen to what other people had started to dwindle. And I think there were certain things that, I tried to put in place that would help with that a little bit in terms of helping, again, that sort of refilling of cups. And it might just be as simple as just having a complete switch off time where you turn your phone off and you go for a walk with the missus or you deliberately go somewhere out in the countryside that doesn't have signal. So no one can contact you. I think just talking and being pretty open, just going, look, I need some time off. I need some me time. There's people on our program, both staff Uh, athletes who have basically got a month off with kind of mental health related problems at the moment so i think it's really something that's real and i think probably recognizing when you start to go on that slippery little slope that you sort of almost stop yourself going too far down that road and just working out what ticks your boxes and sort of refills that cup is probably the best way that i can do it and just try and put as much of that in as possible I think, I think it was Ramesh Raghunathan, the comedian, sort of said there was three things for him that he knew he would start to kind of get on a slippery path with, And I think it was nutrition, sleep, and I think it was something like going to the gym. But if he didn't have, if certain bits of those three deteriorated or all three of them deteriorated, then he started to get some of the, all the dark sort of feelings, memories, and, and thoughts back again that he used to feel. So I think it's always just really important to kind of work out well, actually, certain things might be all right, but you might be neglecting other elements. And Yeah, if you do, then you're probably at risk of potentially deteriorating a little bit and, and not being as good for your athletes and whatever that you are. Because as soon as that goes down, you then don't get the job satisfaction that you were getting. And then, therefore, that biggest desire that you had and, and what kind of makes you tick and pick the job you've done then isn't fulfilling you. So then no parts of your life are fulfilling. You. Uh, and then it's just a bit of a mess.
1: Continuing with Steve's story, let's explore his metaphor of filling cups and the delicate balance it represents between valuing oneself and meeting the demands of daily life, both personal and professional. How do you navigate this balance in your own life? Steve prompts us to consider implementing daily triggers to monitor our well-being, enabling us to recognize and control moments of struggle before they deteriorate. Do you have such practices in place to safeguard your mental and emotional health? Furthermore, Steve highlights the importance of having connections that can recognize changes in us and support our journey towards being the best version of ourselves. Realization and communication, as Steve puts it, can be our superpowers. As we delve deeper into Steve's insights, we invite you to reflect on your own journey. Remember, your feedback is invaluable in helping us continue to bring your stories of inspiration. Please follow, like, rate and review our podcast to support us in this mission. I know you have people that deal with the lifestyle and the cycle part of dealing with athletes, but to me, it feels like there's a combination of the two that you maybe not are consciously thinking about, but you are playing a part in in delivering that environment to keep that athlete upbeat and on track. So are there any trends that you see ongoing in the future between uh, physiotherapy and dealing with athletes well-being in terms of what? future sports physiotherapists or athletic trainers or anybody in that space you feel need to be a, a, aware of and how can they prepare for them in the future
0: yeah i mean i think there's a big general emphasis within physiotherapy we're not just kind of massage now we certainly have branched out massively into sort of s c worlds and motivational interviewing and understanding pain and, and all this kind of stuff really and treating people from the top down rather than the sort of bottom up if you like so making sure they are mentally right because actually there's a whole load of stuff with anxieties, depression, performance issues that, that can arise from beliefs and, and the mental side, really. And there's a lot more stuff going on with imagery in that world. So imagining yourself doing various activities, doing it well. Sprinters use it a lot. I think A lot of F1 racing people will do it and sort of imagine themselves flying around the track, won't they, or a 100-meter runner running down the track or exploding out the blocks, that kind of thing. So there's a whole really exciting world within physiotherapy and particularly sports physiotherapy that way. I find it's more uh, an identifying and encouraging people to kind of almost in that environment to to open up and and try and almost explore a little bit in terms of where they're at. I suppose just off the top of my head, what we do with all of our athletes is we actually do like a, a readiness to return questionnaire. So again, like how confident they feel with their their injury, do you know what I mean? Are they where they want to be? What else concerns, apprehensions, fears do they have around that? So I think exploring that could be a really useful one. I think physios generally tend to have a, quite a, because it's quite often if you are treating something, it's tactile, you almost feel like you're in a, you're sort of building a relationship in, in that kind of way that often people may well disclose things that they don't disclose when they're sat directly opposite someone who's a psych or whatever. So Sometimes when they're little heads in the hole sort of thing and they're not looking at you. Similar to like, I think guys generally like walking side by side so they're not looking at each other in the eye, but that's when they tend to almost talk a little bit more. Women tend to look at each other. But again, it's quite an interesting one because the amount of stuff that people have kind of disclosed when their head's in a hole and you, I don't know, maybe rub it into their shoulder or their back or I don't know, doing something with their hamstring or whatever it may be. That's sometimes the time that they tend to open up and explore and it might be like a protected... 20 minute time where they're away from everybody else and, and that might be a time that uh, you almost check in to see how they are mentally, where they feel that they're at. Is there anything that they feel that they need more within their rehab programs? Are they being pushed enough? Are they being pushed too hard? Is there any external stresses and all that kind of thing? So I think the, the way beyond that original sort of learning a, a technique or a skill thing, the, the worlds of physiotherapy is a, it's just a lot more Holistic, if you like it. That's probably the best way to.
1: Yeah, I think the the issue around performance anxiety is is intriguing to me as to how that leads into injury and performance in general. Because I know growing up, I feel like it was more, you won't say anything because you'll continue to play. But then you know that you're not fully right and then that will lead to lack of performance. But then you don't want to drop out of the team because then you don't feel like you're going to get back into the team. And now I feel like it's maybe a little bit opposite is where we use things as a reason why we're not performing. And it, and it, generally comes from an anxious point of view to want to perform to a higher level and trying to find reasons why we can't. So just developing that, that openness, I guess, and communication chain in terms of developing self belief that weaknesses aren't always weaknesses. They can turn into our strengths if we deal with them better. So my last question for you is obviously you've been on quite a journey at the elite level. If there was anything that you would tell yourself 20 years ago before you started, especially at, at Newcastle, you said you had some Stockholm syndrome, I <laughs> think you called it, in, in terms of how, how you would, uh, even deal with athletes maybe differently or how you would deal with yourself differently or a key message to send to obviously people in your, um, growth physio academy. What's the biggest piece of advice you could give to either yourself or to someone in a similar situation? at the very beginning that you maybe wish you would have known?
0: Yeah, I think probably for me, the one thing I always say is people are absolutely desperate to go into these sports clubs and go and volunteer and just give up their spare time and do whatever. And quite often the reality is they end up getting stuck in a little side room and they sort of are rubbing away in a converted old shower or something like that. And it's a bit grim, really, and they're they're not really learning. So I think my advice to everybody is always make sure you're in an environment that you can grow in. Some of that looks like having somebody who is willing to nurture you, develop you, invest in you, that kind of way, because none of these jobs are very well paid unless you're literally in like a top four, top six, maybe in the Premiership football wise. They're the guys who are making a reasonable bit of money. The guys who are sitting in the Premiership rugby wise, again, sort of top fours are probably making about under grand. Rest are probably making about 30 to 40,000 a year as a sort of first team physiotherapist really so you're not making big cash you're not there for the money but again if you're not getting the extra bits around it you're not getting the support the development the experiences that you want then actually probably you need to kind of highlight that and make sure that is correct so I think making it very clear from the off what you want so I would definitely sit down before you start a role and set parameters set boundaries and and say what you are willing to do because You do, to some extent, end up becoming a yes man in the worlds of sport. And you just end up doing all these random things that you didn't really intend on doing. But I think this sort of feeling that it's a massive privilege. Actually, they're also privileged to have you as well. Like you're coming in with a great skill set, a passion to deliver and develop the squad and the team. And you're there for the right reason. So it has to be a two way thing. And what I probably felt was that I owed the club everything and the club didn't owe me very much, but actually recognizing your self-worth in that sense is absolutely imperative, really.
1: As we draw this episode to a close, Steve's profound insights remind us of the incredible impact we can create when we prioritize our own well-being. Through introspection and setting personal boundaries, we empower ourselves to serve others more effectively. Remember, your story holds immense value, and by fostering strong relationships and open communication, we can navigate life's challenges with greater resilience. Take a moment to reflect on what truly fulfills you and let that realization fuel your commitment to your own narrative. Join us next time for more inspiring conversations and practical insights on nurturing the self for the betterment of all. Don't forget to follow, like, share, rate and review so we can continue to bring you stories of empowerment. I've been your host, Lee Bakewell, and remember the power to make a difference begins with valuing yourself. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please subscribe and leave a rating and review to stay up to date with embracing the journey living beyond limits and get all the behind the scenes content visit www.raisemindset.org forward slash podcast where you can find links to follow us at all our social media channels and available podcast platforms on apple spotify and podbean thank you for listening